On this episode of IT Visionaries, we sit down with Ankit Kumar, CTO of Ubiquity6, whose mission is to unlock new ways for people to connect in physical spaces. Ankit and host Ian Faison take a deep dive into everything currently going on in the computer vision industry, specifically augmented and virtual reality. Ankit discusses building AR technology and the complexity that goes into it, as well as businesses that can benefit from this type of technology. Enjoy this interview. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And we have special guest, Ankit, what's going on? I'm good. How are you doing? You know, it's just a brilliant day in sunny San Francisco, sitting high above the Bay Bridge right here at Ubiquity 6 HQ. We're going to get into all things AR, VR, what you're building, founding the company. But first, how'd you get into technology? Technology. Even growing up, I was always into gadgets and Legos and things like that. And my my dad is an engineer, so I got into technology in the broad sense as a young kid. And I was always into video games and things like that. Uh, I think I've always been sort of interested in technology in the sense of like using science and math, like understand the world, so to speak. But software technology was in college, my sophomore year of college. And when you started kind of working with it, early days, were you thinking about AR? Were you focused on AR? Were you particularly excited about it? What what led you to that? Early days of software technology, not really AR, VR. I got into software really as a sort of tool for math, really. I came by way of math and software was just the next tool to like do math better, more or less. So that's what got me into AI and computer vision, broadly speaking. AR, VR, I think I got into significantly before by being into like sci-fi movies and books and things like that. Um, And then a little bit into my sort of journey with tech and AI computer vision, I sort of realized that the two interests converged there. And then I got really interested in AR, VR and kind of what you could do with graphics and sort of immersive experiences and things like that. How'd you meet your co-founder? My co-founder, we, uh, we've known each other for a long time now. We met freshman year of college. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. He didn't share that with me. We actually uh, lived together um, during college for a summer. Summer after our sophomore year, we lived together in San Francisco. Just actually right down the street from where we are now. That's crazy. So um, when did the idea for Ubiquity 6 come? Like when was that first, the inklings of that between you two? Hmm. The inklings of that must have happened in college. We were both sort of into sci-fi and like this sort of promised vision of the world, however far in the future it was at the time. Um, so the inklings must have started a while ago. I would say we we sort of started thinking about the idea in earnest um, maybe two years ago or so, two and a half years ago, talking about sort of trends in in the industry, looking at smartphone processing power is like a really major one that allows the sort of on-device AR that is critical um, for the experience. 
And if you look at sort of the progress of computer vision as a software technology and the progress of hardware, smartphone processing power being a big one, it became clear maybe three years ago, maybe a little bit more depending on how you're extrapolating forward that these kinds of experiences were were coming to like mobile devices, which have large market penetration. And uh, and that's sort of kind of what started the, the real conversation. Um, but we must have been talking about this kind of an idea for since since college. So what was like in those kind of early conversations, what were you talking about with like the industry as a whole of like, hey, where's this going? What's kind of the business need? Where do we fit into this? You know, he was obviously an investor. So he's seen a bunch of technologies. Uh, and what were you working on at the time? So at the time, um, I had my experience was in like deep learning computer vision. Actually, I started as natural language processing and got into computer vision. And at the time, deep learning was just sort of uh, a new technology. And all of the deep learning, um, all of the ways that deep learning had been brought to market were around very large servers and like a big compute power environments. And we were sort of looking at if we could shrink deep learning and run on very compute constrained devices. So like things like a GoPro or like security cameras, things like that. So very, even more compute constrained than a phone would be. Um, and that was sort of when, that was sort of where it became clear to me, what, like where processing power is going on the, on the small devices and, and what was going to be possible. So that was what I was working on at the time. And Anjane was investing at Kleiner Perkins, focused on AR, VR, computer vision, that kind of field. And so what I was realizing about compute power and what he was seeing in the market about what people were trying to do, but quite not quite able to do at the time um, and kind of extrapolating forward as to what this technology could do from like a product perspective, like what, how it can Im- impact people's lives, how, how they could interact with sort of technology in the world in a different way. You know, I would say our, our, our company is not exactly like an idea that no one has thought about before. Mm-hmm. It, it's the idea has been around in like sci-fi rainbows end as a book, which I think Anjay probably gave you. Yeah. Um, we're going to read it after this. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, this vision of the world has been around. It's not like we invented it from scratch, right? It's a little bit more of a realization that in fact that is possible now. Right. And so looking at what the industry was trying to do, looking at where technology was going was kind of the genesis of this thought that maybe now is the time, so to speak. Um, and that's, and that's kind of how it started. So, you know, flash forward to today with the company, um, what business use cases do you see, um, in AR, VR, uh, in this space? Because I think a lot of, you know, our listeners, um, C-level leaders are kind of trying to like wait and figure out like where the heck AR is going. Maybe they're, you know, dip their toe with a few experiments here or there, but with a few exceptions, certain people in retail and things like that. But most most people are just kind of waiting to see what the business use cases are. Um, what are you seeing? Well, I think the first, from our perspective, the first answer to that question is not necessarily a sort of B2B use case, like a business use case. It's more of a product for consumers to, to use. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, we would like to expose this technology to the world in a way in which consumers are able to get value out of it just from a pure sort of uh, product perspective without having to go through like some other business to to get that value they are. I think that long term, it is likely that 
businesses will find value on our platform and and with this kind of with this technology broadly speaking and I, I think the first place that that would be like a clear win would be businesses that have like physical venues so restaurants coffee shops offices um, museums things like this where there's sort of a valuable asset which is the business itself the physical location and for one reason or another it is valuable to like augment it in some rich way right um so that would be like the first clear business use cases i would say but really we're we're focused on getting this out to the mass market as like a consumer product so you know one of the things Andre talked and i talked about was this idea that like you have if you have like the ready player one world which is like totally separate world that is not mm-hmm. our own whereas what you're building is layers and layers on top of how the physical world can be added to mm-hmm. an experience from people all over the world um you did a really cool uh multi-user experience at sf moma mm-hmm. can you share kind of like from uh, an experiential standpoint what that was like and then we can get into the like what the tech was on that yeah so <clears throat> you're asking what the experience was yeah. for the end user yeah uh, so the idea with that sort of preview, let's say you would come into the MoMA, you'd have our app and you would localize an AR. So now you're all in a sort of shared coordinate system, looking at the same AR content flo- floating in the MoMA. And at the time the MoMA was doing, um, an exhibit on Rene Magritte, who's like a Belgian, he's like this Belgian surrealist painter. Um, and so it kind of fit the AR theme pretty well, like this, their surrealism of being able to put like a virtual floating rock, let's say, in a museum. And so there were kind of two experiences that we did at the MoMA. One was what is essentially a sort of ode to Magritte, like an art piece, essentially, where we would, what you were seeing was 3D art that was sort of Magritteian in nature in the atrium of the MoMA, and you were seeing it in the same way as everyone else was. And there was some interaction you could do where you would like... um, create like a little balloon and it'd go flying in the air and you could see other people doing it. So you were sort of, you were sort of interacting with the art, so to speak. The other experience was, was less about Magritte and it was more this idea of sort of adding to the MoMA, like putting a virtual sculpture in, in, in the museum itself. And so what it it was something like a sandbox experience where people could build sculptures together and, you know, put, selfies on it and things like that and then the idea is that's persistent in the moma like allegedly forever sort of sort of thing um or at least until someone else you know overwrites it or whatever the experience was but but the concept was you're building something together with other people that you might not have met before just they just happen to also be in the moma on our app um and that's like a persistent thing that you're building so what, from a technology standpoint, like what was under the hood of, and I know you, there's a lot of proprietary mm-hmm. stuff you can't share, but um, like what type of experiences, you know, obviously you're building for mobile, obviously on mm-hmm. desktop, people mm-hmm. can experience it. You know, if you're sitting in Brazil mm-hmm. and you're on desktop, mm-hmm. um, like what are the different ways that yeah. um, that people can experience that? Yeah. So, you know, from a technical perspective, there there there's sort of two phases, so to speak. So the first is when we went to the MoMA and we captured the space, right? And so we went there and this was us, but it could have been any user in, in, in the future. Um, it's, not a, it's not a particularly difficult thing to do. All you need is a smartphone. And you essentially take a video of the space 
and you send it to our our backend and our backend turns that video or or multiple videos if if desired into kind of a single reconciled coordinate system 3D representation of the space of the MoMA. And there are a number of things that that 3D representation sort of has with it. The the two kind of primary ones would be visualization, so it's a pretty high fidelity representation. Um, and the ability to localize someone in that coordinate space later when they're there. So that's kind of the setup phase. So now we have this sort of rich 3D representation of the MoMA, has some semantic information, has visualization, localization, things like this. So now that we've sort of brought the MoMA online into our virtual world, let's say, and then we put our the experiences we want in it. So we would put the art pieces that I was talking about, we put the sandbox, these are sort of experiences or games that users will be able to play. Now we get to the second phase, which is actually experiencing that content as a user, right? And so like you're saying, there are a number of ways you can experience it. If you're not there, if you live in Brazil or India or whatever, and you want to take part in this event, in this experience, you can go with just a link, right? A, a link on the web. You the What you're looking at is that high fidelity representation of the space and you're interacting in ju just like anyone else who's there, right? And you're seeing the people who are there, like their avatars and things like this. You can do the same in VR, this is a similar concept. Um, if you're not there, you can kind of teleport in via VR. If you are there, that's when the localization piece comes into play where you're in AR and the critical thing that we need to do is kind of reconcile your local coordinate system so what happens when you open up an AR app is that you kind of start at zero, zero, zero of some coordinate system that is just allocated for you at kind of on demand. And of course, that's not the same coordinate system of our representation of the space. And that's what, that's what I mean when I say localization. It's sort of reconciling where, where you think you are in your coordinate system to where you are in our kind of persistent coordinate system that's shared across everyone. And so once you localize, now you're in the same kind of experience context as everyone else, as the people who are in VR, the people who are on desktop, um, you're all kind of interacting together. And so basically, you know, if I'm watching from Brazil and you're physically in the MoMA, now we can have an AR experience where like I write, you know, hi on kid on the mm -hmm. wall and you're like, Hey, what's up Ian? And yeah. we're, and we can both see it, but also everyone else who's has their, uh, you know, phones in the MOBA could also see that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. And most importantly, you're sort of together in the same context, which is the, the MOMA, right? It feels like you're actually there because the representation is high enough fidelity, right? It's not just like a, it's not just like sending someone a message on chat or something, you're actually in a rich 3D environment that is one-to-one -one aligned with the MoMA itself, right? And so the changes you're doing, the like how you're changing the, the world is being reflected in the real world in the MoMA, right? For the people in AR. Also for our listeners who don't know what the MoMA is, it's the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah, like, what yeah. is this MoMA yeah, you're speaking of? It's a big museum in San Francisco. It's, it's great. So compare you know, this app to other AR apps like Pokemon Go or something like that. We had mm -hmm. um, Phil from uh, the CTO of mm -hmm. um, Niantic on here talking about Pokemon Go um, and how, you know, their goal is to get people actually outside mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. that leveraging AR. Um, can you kind of like ex expand on like building these kind of mm -hmm. worlds in our natural world rather than kind mm -hmm. of building a, a simulation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Pokemon Go is a great start. And I think there are kind of two 
critical differences that how we're sort of trying to go further. So Pokemon Go did a great job of sort of presenting to the user this idea that there is a virtual layer on top of the real world. It's popular with Pokemon. There's a Pokestop here. There's a gym, etc. But there, there are two kind of axes in which we're trying to we're trying to improve that. So one is that we want our world to be much richer, right? So in Pokemon Go, when you find a Pokemon, you and someone next to you might be catching the same that Pokemon, but they're different instances of the Pokemon, right? It's not like I catch it and it goes away from for you. Oh yeah, got it. Right? Okay. So the multiplayer aspect is not sort of in the same environment. It's sort of um, one step removed. So if right. if Pikachu moved fifty feet to the left, right? It's not like we're seeing the same Pikachu. It's moving around because I throw a Pokeball at it and it's running away from me. And you're seeing that happen. It's kind of like we're in two different copies of the same experience. Right? Yeah. We're not actually together, right? So that's that's one way we want to make it much richer. And the the only way that's possible is with the kind of localization technology I'm talking about, because the the critical piece that's missing there is that. When I open AR and when you open AR, you're at zero, zero, zero in your understanding and as am I. And so it's very hard without some globally consistent corner system to register both of us too for us to see the same thing in the same place and like maintain that illusion of, of AR, right? So that's, that's one piece is about the richness. The other piece is about sort of, in a sense, empowering users to create this world. So Pokemon Go is created by Niantic and they have made the world what what they wanted it to be. We want users to be able to make their own world, whatever they want it to be and share it with other people, right? And so we're not coming at it from a sort of studio perspective, building some AAA game that is engaging to a certain subset of people that say like Pokemon. We want to empower users to build the world themselves. So if you want to play you know, basketball in the MoMA, you can create an app that builds a basketball hoop and, you know, stand in the MoMA and shoot hoops and, right. and whatever. Or right. you could play, you know, cricket at Madison Square Garden or whatever it is. Right. And once once we have the MoMA sort of digitized and into our platform, now many people can make layers of content on that kind of canvas, so to speak, the, the MoMA being the, the canvas. Um, and so even if you live in Brazil, you can make an experience at the MoMA, right? You don't have to actually go be there, but we want, we want users to be able to do that themselves, right? So this seems like it's an extremely complex thing to build, mm-hmm. um, especially with the amount of different ways that a user, you know, being essentially device agnostic, mm-hmm. um, can you talk about just building the technology and the complexity that goes into, you know, this product specifically? Like, what's your team look like? Like, mm-hmm. how how do you uh, how do you organize around that um, and everything? Yeah, so there's sort of broadly speaking at the company three efforts from a from a te- technical perspective. the The first one is probably the the most key is the is the mapping effort, the computer vision backend piece. So this part of the company will will kind of take as input from devices, from users, uh, sensor data that they're capturing is essentially a video uh, with associated metadata like IMU and accelerometer, things like that. And the goal is to turn that into a rich 3D representation of the space that they were in. 
And that 3D representation needs to be updatable. It needs to be updated because the world changes, of course. And we want it to be as rich as possible, right? So the question is sort of what does richness mean there? For us, I, you know, I mentioned sort of high fidelity visualization of the space, the ability to localize in that later. There's also a, a lot of semantic understanding that we want to have about a space. So not just that, you know, there's a there's some geometry in some area, but that in fact is a wall or a table or a chair, things like that. That allows us to turn our 3D representation into a sort of usable canvas for games, experiences, content, broadly speaking. For example, if if you take a capture sort of outside in, in some uh, park, you might want to know as a developer later who's creating content for that space that, you know, there's trees here. And so, you know, make birds fly around in that area or something like that, right? Yeah. So I think from a kind of core tech side, a lot of AR, VR kind of as a whole is going to be around gaining more and more richness in that understanding of space. So, you know, I think the industry and, and academia as a whole has sort of just scratched the surface of sort of what could be done with that with that data and sort of how rich we can make that understanding. So <clears throat> that's kind of the lowest level of stack that's like building the building the canvases. Next level is creating content for those canvases. So we mentioned the the preview at the MoMA. We've mentioned things like avatars and, and real-time experiences and things like that. There's a part of the company that's sort of in that level of the stack, which is creating 3D content, right, for users to interact with. The final piece is uh, what you just mentioned, which is that we're across many platforms. And so each platform has its own sort of application that acts essentially as a lens into our virtual world or our spaces, right? Um, and that's kind of the top of the stack. That's the, f that's the entryway of a user. And those applications kind of both serve as essentially runtimes for the content and lenses into our virtual world, but also as, you know, a more sort of standard social app uh, with users and profiles and following folks and stuff like that. Um, so those are the, the kind of three pieces. Because there's sort of a significant amount of complexity in that stack, the communication and integration points between the pieces are are kind of constantly changing and and the cross-team communication becomes very important. So that's been, that's been one of the challenges that we've really focused on in terms of building this technology is to be very clear about the kind of layering of the system and, and where dependencies lie. Have there been any things that surprised you, um, you know, in the past couple of years in building the product, whether it's like, you know, feedback from users or feedback from customers um, or just kind of feedback from the team? One thing that surprised me is kind of how important um, it, it feels even a little bit dumb to say in a, in a way, but like how important just clarity is, mm. especially as a service or a set of services grow in scope to the point where it's just a complex thing. The difference in productivity of individual teams when they have a very clear sense of where they lie in the stack relative to other teams versus kind of working on a feature or a set of features in, in within the team is incredible actually. And it's just sort of like the the more you spread out that kind of information and the more that it's clear to everyone how the pieces come together, the better individual decisions people can make kind of day to day. I want to talk a little bit about kind of deep learning, mm -hmm. um, not directly, 
you know, always applicable to what you're building now, but you've worked on it in the past. I'm mm-hmm. curious, you know, if you have any thoughts on kind of where deep learning is headed as an industry. Yeah, I I think the the first answer to that question is I think, and this is, I think, been shown out over the last five years is that there's a there's going to be and can, there is and will continue to be for some period of time a bit of a sort of inexorable march of deep learning taking over more and more traditionally like other AI related industries and and fields let's say not not industries but like academic fields. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at where deep learning was in 2012 when the craze kind of started with Krzyzewski's paper up until now, it's sort of like deep learning just slowly kind of inching its way and solving more and more harder problems and kind of taking over more and more of the industry. Um, I think that will continue to happen for some period of time. I think in terms of like industry adoption of deep learning, a lot of the sort of industry adoption of deep learning seems to be more of almost like a software engineering problem now and not, not as much of a sort of research problem because in many cases now it's it's really a sort of how do you train these massive, massive networks on massive, massive data sets and kind of do that in a continuous way and deploy it kind of safely and reliably and things like that. Because the the scale of data that we're working with now is incredible, right? And a lot of progress in the sort of top end of, of deep learning, like pushing accuracy, like 1%, 2%, et cetera, has been driven by the ability to train on more data essentially and d- to do so and iterate on really, really big networks better driven more by that than, you know, algorithmic invention. Now there's algorithmic invention as well, of course, but, but I think there's sort of two axes in which deep learning is, is going to grow. One is like just better tooling and systems and processes to work with the data in industry. And the other being like more algorithmic, you know, invention where we're, applying deep learning to more problem statements, to different kinds of problems, kind of making small improvements here and there every once in a while, a bigger improvement. And I think the next sort of, people have been saying this for a while, to be honest, but is like generative models and more easier ways to understand unstructured data, which of which we have a lot in the world. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's probably, there's some, there's some more recent work that is like doing better on this domain, but People have been admittedly saying that for a while, but that I think is like where deep learning would will go from an academic stance. But on a on an industry perspective, I think it's a lot of like the tooling now around deep learning versus five years ago is is an incredible difference. Um, TensorFlow, PyTorch, things like this um, are becoming very very mature. Working with lots of data is becoming more more mature. How do you think kind of your previous roles, um, being a data science consultant? Uh, having your own consulting company and doing research prepped you to be a CTO? Yeah. So the data science consultancy stuff was, was in college. And I think that that was more than anything was more of a learning experience about entrepreneurship in general, Mm -hmm. um, rather than sort of tech itself. Um, and that was, that was a great experience. Um, the, the research aspect of it has been, I would say, Nowadays, I'm more of a generalist software person, let's say, than a researcher. I, you know, I, I do still really enjoy um, research elements, and I keep up to date with with academia as much, as best I can. But nowadays, I'm pretty much a I just love software and building things in general. But the research 
angle I think is for, for me now is more of like a way of thinking and like a, a way of applying sort of a more systematic view to problems and sort of trying to solve problems in a more step-by-step manner, which is sort of like the, what has been drilled into me from college. And, you know, before I was doing stats and AI, I was, I was actually, I, I, my major's in math from, from college. And that's also like a very systematic way of thinking. And I think that that is the part of that training that has stayed with me is just like how I approach problems. Do you think that, you know, for any kind of folks out there, any developers that are looking to build in AR and VR, like what would be your advice to those folks? Well, I think one really important part is to realize that building in AR and VR is and will be for a while very closely tied to like building a game. So I believe that many of these experiences will not be like traditional games the way we think of games today. But from a technical perspective, they're, they are and will be very similar for a long time. You have, to understand, you have to understand 3D. You have to understand kind of 3D rendering, which is very different than the sort of, let's say, web rendering that a web developer might might realize. I mean, they're both kinds of rendering, but the, but the tools and uh, technology around 3D rendering is very, very different. And you should go and try to understand that. You can't really just work with it kind of as a practitioner if you want to sort of really get into it. So I would say go understand game engines and game rendering, 3D rendering deeply and understand kind of 3D math and and how to work with things in 3D because that's that's what you're signing up for is, is 3D. And 3D, working in 3D is a, is a bit of a mental shift for sure. So I'd say definitely like own that and realize that and, and, and study accordingly. Other than that, I would say, you know, there are not that many like tried and true practices. So like be willing to experiment a bit and like take the long way home. You talked about like you stay at kind of keep up with the Joneses on, on research and things like that. What stuff are you reading? What stuff do you encourage your team or um, developers that, that you have? What, what are you uh, what are you listening to? Well, I, I read papers still, uh, when I find them on, you know, I'll, I will find papers on places like Twitter and Reddit and blogs and things like that. I don't, there's not like a one place that I go to, to, to keep up to date. Um, if, uh, if something's interesting, I'll encourage the people on the team to read it. I don't have that much time nowadays to read like books, which is a little bit unfortunate. I kind of spend my reading time on paper, <laughs> papers more or less, but yeah, I think that it's important to stay up to date with the with the way the field's going because there's so much progress and you can miss something like very quickly. Um, even in the sort of two plus years that we've been doing this 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 company, the field has changed relatively dramatically. And when you're working in a field with such high rate of progress, it's you're you're very liable to get left behind, right? Let's get in the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about lightning fast employee experience. Lightning round questions. Are you ready? Yep. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Mm, most fun. Uh, our app. Other than your <laughs> That's cheating. 
But for our listeners, you should go sign up at ubiquity6.com. We'll link it up in the show notes. Um, second favorite app. Probably like iMessage, the Messenger app. I, the, all right. <laughs> favorite science fiction book or series? Probably Rainbow's End, actually. Yeah. Which, which you have a copy of now. I know. Now I'm going to read it. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite thing to cook or eat? To cook or eat, probably. I'm I'm pretty simple when it comes to that, like pasta with chicken and broccoli. How about favorite one-day getaway in the Bay Area? In the Bay Area? Well, sometimes I, I grew up in San Diego. So sometimes I'll do a one-day getaway just back home. Oh, yeah. Which is sure. great, yeah. San Diego is great. I'm going there yeah, like, yeah. next week. Um, what would be your thing you're most excited about for the future of technology? Hmm. I'm, I'm pretty excited about wearable AR, which is wearable technology. I, I kind of call anything wearable AR, broadly speaking. But uh, yeah, glasses, uh, like ambient AR and wearable technology, I think will be, will be a big shift. Best advice for a first-time CTO? Best advice for a first-time CTO? Realize that your job is not going to be coding for that long. <laughs> That's good advice. Well, this has been awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, all of our listeners should check out ubiquity6.com. Sign up. It's going to be great. We're going to follow along. Super excited for AR and uh, and everything y'all are doing. Awesome. Any fi final shout outs? Any things to plug? Uh, nothing really to plug. Just uh, go to ubiquity6.com. Awesome. Thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.